Uh, well, we are reading this morning from the book of Romans. I invite you to take your Bible and open up to the book of Romans. And today we're coming to chapter 7. We're continuing in this series that we're calling Unashamed. And we're taking that from Paul's words, the Apostle Paul's words in the first chapter of Romans where he says, I am not ashamed. I am unashamed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, because it is the power for salvation to all those who believe. And so we're looking for ways as we study our way through the second part of Romans this summer in particular about ways that we too can be unashamed, not ashamed to proclaim the good news of who Jesus Christ is. And we come to a passage today that is an interesting one, to say the least. Let's stand together, can we? And I'm going to read to us. It's chapter 7, beginning down at verse 15, and reading through just to the first part of 25. I'll read it for us, and at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, Thanks be to God. I don't really understand myself. That's a great way to start a scripture, isn't it? For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So, I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me? From this life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, good morning again. And it is great to tackle this passage. I've been away for a few weeks. And what a fun one to come back to after not preaching for a few weeks and just jump right into Romans 7. And uh, this has just been a, a, uh, a well-known passage within the book of Romans and also one that is uh, controversial somewhat and hotly debated. Starts out with struggle. Starts out with defeat. Starts out with failure. Not much of great joy here, but an important message for us to pay attention to. An important portion of scripture for us to to kind of dive into here this morning. Have you ever 
sort of felt yourself in Paul's shoes as he writes here today? And maybe not to think about sinful activity or sinful behavior to start with, but, but just somewhere where you're just kind of in over your head. And what you want to do, you, you don't do. And what you don't want to do, you do. And, and were any of you, the rest of you confused as you allowed me to read that passage for you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm concerned all the time that I'm doing things to mess up. I, I'm just pretty sure that pretty much every day I do things to mess up my children. I mean, that's just kind of a given. Uh, I'm really working hard not to mess up our church, but I'm sure that there is a time or two where I've done something that, you know, you would have questioned. Uh, I'm trying not to mess up my own life. You know, that's hard enough work for many of us, right, from day to day, just to get the, the stuff done that we need to and, and accomplish the challenges before us. But I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about something tangible. Anybody been in a a DIY project lately, a household maintenance project, and suddenly you realize that this isn't working. Anybody else like me have YouTube courage? I just have so much YouTube courage. If I don't know how to do something, I just watch it on YouTube, and, and I know how to do it. I'm an expert. I mean, I have done things because of YouTube that I could have never imagined doing before. If you haven't tried this yet, you just, if, you, if you don't know how to do something, just type it in, YouTube. And most likely, a video will come up that somebody has done that, and not only did they do it, but that's right, they filmed it, and, and they put it on there for you to be able to follow. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. So I, I've done all sorts of things. I, uh, have cha- I just changed the batteries in my car keys this, this work to unlock and lock the door this week. That was, that was impressive. I mean, how do you know how to get that key open, get the battery out, which battery you need until you watch it on YouTube. I, uh, I replaced the hydraulic poles in my tailgate one time on my car. That was pretty impressive. I, I'm just waiting for it to fail and for it to slam on my hand or my head, but um, it, it's working. Not long ago, though, I was, um, I was getting ready to go with our student ministry down to Elevate, this youth retreat in San Diego, and um, Aaron was already down at Point Loma where, this, where Elevate is held. So I was, you know, getting ready to kind of help lead the charge. I think we had like 35 people going, several cars, our church van. And I knew that Greg Venzer was driving the church van and that he would not drive it unless it was appropriately serviced. And so the afternoon before we were going to leave, I decided I better look at the van. And what I discovered was that it needed some new tires, needed its oil changed, and so I went and took care of those things. Uh, and, you know... In, in somewhat of a timely fashion. But then I began to make my interior inspection of the van. And what I, what, what I found was that one of the seatbelts in particular was not functioning. It was stuck. It had gotten tangled, twisted, you know how they do sometimes, down in the roller, and it would not budge. And as much as I tried to push and pull and just kind of lightly maneuver, it would not move one bit. And I knew that we needed every seat in every car, that van, in order to get everyone from here down to there, and that Greg would not pull out of the parking lot without every seatbelt in working condition. And so I was just faced with a, 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 an issue, a problem. YouTube to the rescue, right? So the problem with this was though that there was not one video that completely sealed the deal. There was sort of a compilation of different ones that 
were vans like ours and seatbelt situations like ours, but not quite the same. But I figured, no problem. So armed with a set of screwdrivers that I found in Aaron's office and a lot of determination, I set about the task. And uh, pretty soon I had the seat pulled out, the panel pulled off, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, had, I took this picture, not so that I could show you later, but so that I would somewhat kind of remember what it looked like, even though most of it's already off, so I could know how to put it back on. I was snapping little pieces that will forever be uh, embedded in the panel, in the wall of the van that we'll hear from, from now till eternity. But, uh, but, but I, I, I was way in over my head. The worship team was showing up for practice that, that night, some of you remember. They were sort of walking by me like uh, the, the, uh, you know, the beat-up guy on the side of the road. I, you know, but they had practice, right? So they were coming in, they were looking at me. Guys, I was sweaty, I was hot, I was dirty, and what I wanted to do, I was not doing. But finally, I just, I got all the panels off, and I... Then I started to work on the seatbelt again, and it still wouldn't budge. And I don't know why I thought it would. I mean, it wouldn't budge when the panel was on. Why would it budge when it's off? But in an act of desperation, I just took one of those screwdrivers, and I just drove it down into the seatbelt. And I figured, I'm either going to tear the thing in two, and it will get loose, and somehow we'll tape it back together for Greg's purposes, or it'll come, it'll come loose. And I got the screwdriver under there and worked on it, worked on it. I hope no one saw me as they drove past. I was just fighting with that thing. And finally, it came loose. Can I get a round of applause? Yes. But then, of course, I was only halfway done. Because as I said, I had to try to put that stuff back on. And just, you know, when you get into the van, if you ever do, just don't look real carefully at the left side panel as you go back into the seats. Everything will be fine if you just don't look too carefully. Well, this is what this passage is, is talking about on a much deeper and much more devastating level. The Apostle Paul is, is talking about a situation that, that, that he is in and it is bad news. In over his head. What he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he doesn't want to do, he does. This is problematic. This is trouble before him. He's dealing with this issue, trying to live a life pleasing to God, but, but without all the resources that he needs, without all the, the videos, without all the instructions, without all the, the resources that he needs in order to be able to do so. Here he is. The law of God telling him what to do, but unable to actually help him to carry out the task. I needed someone to jump out of their YouTube video and say, I'll do it for you, or at least let me hold your hand while you do this. And Here's Paul. Here he is, confronted, as we read several times in this passage, by another power that was at work within him. It wasn't like... like Two competing powers of himself, like a good me and a bad me, but it was me and this power of sin that was at work within him, counteracting his best efforts, leaving him with nothing but frustration and defeat and failure. The passage is without a doubt about the harsh realities of sin. This is, there's no way around it. That's not like a 
a fun thing for us to talk about. We don't really like to focus on that by any means, but there's no way around it. This passage is about the harsh realities of sin, the power of sin that's active in our lives and in the world in which we live. And yet, again, while this much is clear, there are lots of things about this passage, and hopefully you notice them as I read a little bit, that are not as clear, not as obvious by any means. In fact, so varied are the approaches to interpreting this particular passage of Scripture that if you read one commentary, you can almost be assured that the next commentary will have a different take on what Paul has written here. It makes it a great challenge for the preacher, especially when each of these are backed up by great sound academic research and theological and practical and biblical reasoning. Lots of different ways of thinking about it. First, a couple of questions that this passage brings up right from the top. First of all, one of the questions is just who is the I in this passage? Not the E-Y-E, but the I. Who is the I? Who is actually speaking in this portion of Scripture? The obvious answer, it would seem, is that it's Paul himself, right? Writing sort of autobiographically here about his situation in his life. However, many think that the I is actually Paul writing here not just for himself, but on behalf of the nation of Israel. It's I, Paul, but I'm writing on behalf of of the people, the, the people of God who are living under the law of God. Others expand it even further and think that here is Paul writing as I, but on behalf of all of humanity, all of humanity who are even not just under the law of God, but under the moral laws of the universe, writing as a representative for these folks, a broader I. In other words, when he says that he wants to do right but doesn't do it, he is saying we want to do right, but we don't do it. Another question that is often asked and debated in this passage is at what stage of a person's spiritual journey is this testimony referring to? Is what is written here describing the status, stick with me here if you can, describing the status of one who has come to faith in Jesus, has been filled with the Spirit, and yet still continues to struggle with sin? This is what has become known as sort of the pessimistic interpretation of this passage. I think for obvious reasons. It's pessimistic. I'm saved, I'm filled with the Spirit, and yet I continue to struggle with sin. Or, as others have suggested, equally as qualified, is this the testimony of one who has yet to come to faith, who has yet to enter into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and is trying Instead, to achieve salvation through the law, through keeping of rules, through reliance on themselves, on their best efforts. This is what's known as the more optimistic interpretation of the passage. Now, the, the, the more pessimistic approach is what's most popular among Christians today. And again, this is a little bit thick, but I think we can handle it, so stick with me. The, 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 probably the most popular approach to the passage, the, 
It's the sort of instinctive approach that this is the testimony of one who has come to faith, perhaps who is even filled with the Spirit and yet struggles with sin. This is our instinctive reaction because most of us would say, yeah, well, I think that's kind of like me. I, I think that's kind of like the life that I have lived. I, I, as far as I know, I've come to Christ and I've invited the Spirit to even live in my life, but I still struggle with sin and so that seems to kind of resonate with who I am, and it's often how we feel. It matches up with the journey that we're living. Besides that, this, that's the most straightforward way of interpreting this passage. I mean, it's Paul. He's giving this testimony. He's talking. He's sharing about his life and what he's experiencing right here in this moment. Take the testimony at face value. Here he is, struggling with sin. But I have to throw the other option at you because it's a, it's a live one. Because if, as soon as we say that, that, that this pessimistic approach seems what's most likely the way to understand this passage, if we're reflective enough, if we're thoughtful enough, and if we'll pause and be mindful not only of what we've read here, but of what we've heard Pastor Danny and Pastor Aaron speak about in the last couple of weeks from Romans chapter 6... And if we'll sort of anticipate, and you may not be familiar with it, but if just trust me, if you'll anticipate what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 8, if we step back and take a look at this passage in its context, then we sort of have to begin to admit that this kind of confession just doesn't seem to fit within this context of the section of Romans, really within the context of much of Paul's writings in general, this kind of confession seems out of place. There is language of journey, there is always language of growth for sure in Paul, but rarely if ever is there language of failure and defeat like this. Paul's overall approach to what God is able to do in the life of a believer is much, much more optimistic on the whole than what this passage of Scripture represents. When we consider it in this context then, and, and listen to this, when we consider that nearly all of the early church fathers in the early centuries following Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension believed in this more optimistic interpretation of this passage, then we need to stop and give some room at least in our thinking for this second interpretation. So what are we to do? What are we to do when we have different kind of competing perspectives on Scripture? What are we to do when there's sort of this mysterious kind of ambiguous, might I even say, approach to or, or understanding of what the Bible is trying to tell us? Well, some people would say just run and hide. Other people Pick one and plant your flag in the ground and just kind of live there and own it. I, I'm the kind of guy that just says, let's, let's live into the ambiguity. Let's live into the mystery a little bit of a passage of Scripture like this. Let's just admit that we don't maybe fully comprehend all that's going on here. And let's recognize that there might even be some good things for us to hear from both perspectives are both sorts of angles. There might be some realities, some truths, and some correctives. We might need to hear, in fact, from the more pessimistic reading of the passage, that 
that though Jesus has been raised from the dead, that though we are filled with the power of the Spirit, we still live in a world that's broken and filled with sin. We're still broken people and, and so vulnerable to the temptation around us. We already live in a world where God has been at work through His Son, Jesus, but not yet have we fully experienced the, the final and full and complete transformation of God in our lives. At the same time, we need to, we need to hear this corrective to this idea that if we begin to believe that, that there are some downsides. If we make this sort of the normative experience, we might quickly just consign ourselves to a Christian life that is filled with frustration, that is filled with discouragement and despair, that is filled with defeat and, and, and failure, that is always um, falling short. We might begin to sort of live a Christian life that is kind of a woe is me sort of Christianity. I'm just this broken down sinner. And perhaps the most important corrective that we need to hear is that by, by holding on to this particular approach, we might be saying, God, you can only do so much in me. I might be even limiting God by saying that this is how I'm always going to be. It's dangerous. On the other hand, if we hold the more optimistic reading, the idea that this is testimony from Paul on behalf of, the commu- of humanity, or Israel in particular, if we understand we'd be talking not about the life of one who has already come to faith, but to the life of one before their conversion, especially one who's trying to find their way to salvation by way of following a prescribed set of rules or laws, even good and spiritual laws. If we, if we see it this way, then we can begin to recognize that this is an important text in helping people to recognize the limits of a legalistic approach. We need to recognize that this passage is telling us we can't get there by just doing good things. If we see this as talking about someone who is just trying on their own to achieve salvation, to achieve this relationship with God and all the fullness that God has for them, then this passage needs to remind us and state very clearly to us that we can't get there that way. We also need to realize that, that, that to set aside that most simple interpretation, this is where I kind of get hung up too, that to set aside that most simple interpretation of Paul sharing this as a, as a, uh, a testimony of what's going on in his life is, is sort of to play some verbal gymnastics, it almost feels like. And, and to, to, to know that, that I can't say, and, and to, that none of us can say, whether how saved or sanctified we are, that, that we haven't experienced a little bit of what Paul is talking about here. I, I know as a person, as a pastor, as one who has known Christ, who has devoted my life to Christ, I, I know that I would have to admit that there have been times in my life where I have felt like the testimony of Paul in this passage is even current to where I am. So there's correctives, there's helps, there's pros, There's cons. There's issues here. So again, what do we do? Well, let me give you just a couple ideas from the passage. First of all, let's let's just be humble as we approach Scripture. This is probably more of a lesson about just a reading of Scripture than it is about this particular passage. But let's be humble about our approach 
to Scripture. There was a number of years ago where there was somebody in our church who, for reasons that will soon become obvious, is no longer a part of our church. But this person accused me of holding a particular theological position that was highly controversial and, and sort of kind of a hot topic a few number of years ago. And evidently, I had said something in one of my messages, and they began to read about what I said on the internet. They probably YouTubed it. And they got all sorts of information about this particular theological position. And then they brought me, you know, we got together and they said, are you a such and such? I'm not going to tell you the position because you'll go and research it too. And you'll be, oh, you are that. (laughs) Number one, can I just say I appreciate them having that conversation with me. I say a lot of words. And let's just, I just want to be very you know, true right up front that, that n- not all of them are fully edited <laughs> and vetted for their theological accuracy. I, I try to be pretty, you know, I was in the office of one of my professors one time when I was in seminary. I was his teacher's assistant and, and somebody from the publishing house, the Nazarene publishing house called him and he was on the line and the other voice was talking for a while and I couldn't hear that, but I just saw his voice or his face he was kind of raising his eyebrows and, hmm, hmm. Then he goes, huh, I wrote that, huh? <laughs> yeah, you can go ahead and change that. <laughs> so it happens. Sometimes when we write a lot of words, when we say a lot of words, we say something that might not be right. Please feel free to write me a note. Send me an email. Come and talk to me. If something doesn't make sense or if something feels a little funny, then let's, let's talk about it for sure. But let's also be very, very careful that we don't label certain people or certain positions because of their sort of humble, sensitive approach to the Bible. Let's let's give ourselves and let's give other people as well room to listen and to engage in this dance with Scripture and all that is going on there and allow it to... To not be some just kind of, you know, dead document that isn't interacting with us. But a, a live, the living word of God that is interacting with us. So I just think this passage of scripture gives us a great opportunity to step back and say, huh, what does this want to say to me? How does this need to interact and Move within me and stir me as a follower of Jesus. As opposed to just reading it and saying, boom, this is what I believe. Or boom, this is what I believe. Jumping into this camp or that camp. Let's just learn to be folks who are not only reading scripture with a discerning eye, but with a, a, a receptive spirit. I think we can do both at the same time. And a humble heart as the Holy Spirit leads us. You know that the Holy Spirit, we, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. That, that not only did the Holy Spirit inspire its writing, but that the Holy Spirit inspired its collecting. That there was a time when these, these, these books were coming together and the Spirit inspired those who collected them into our Bible as we have it today. But not only that, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspires us as we read it. That the Spirit's inspirational work really never ceases as we, as we read and respond to Scripture. So let, 
that be a little bit of a lesson for us. Another thing, though, wherever you fall on the, the other questions about this passage, we need to realize right up front just the, from this passage, just the, the power and the devastation of, of sin and evil in the world. Um, if there's anything that comes through more clearly and undeniably in this passage, uh, then I don't know what it is. It, it's just right here, regardless, again, of the interpretive lens through which you approach this passage. It's this reality of sin and evil in the world and in our lives. I mean, you, we don't need to read about it in Romans chapter 7. You, you can read about that in the newspaper. You, you heard about it on the news throughout the week. The, the power and the presence of sin and evil in the world in which we live. But it's here for sure. I got to, uh, I got to watch the movie Hacksaw Ridge on the way back from the General Assembly, a church conference, I decided to watch Hacksaw Ridge on the way home. Um, if, if you haven't seen the movie, I, I just would tell you, it's a great movie. It's a war movie. And um, it's pretty graphic. But it's a beautiful, moving story about sacrifice and ultimately about peace and about selflessness. But as I was watching the movie, I was just thinking, and this is a great movie, if it weren't so graphic. You know, if, if there weren't, yeah, I will, I will spare the graphic description, but if it weren't so graphic, if there weren't so many war-like scenes in this movie, it would be such a good movie. And then while I'm watching the movie, and as I'm watching it, as I'm saying that to myself, I say, but then it wouldn't be a very good movie. Because the whole reason why sacrifice and selflessness and a quest for peace works in the movie is because it's graphically violent. And it shows the atrocities and the horrors and the terrors of war. When we can see the, the violence and the graphic nature of war, then the selflessness and the sacrifice and the significance shows up. Well, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to read this passage and say it's such a nice passage if it didn't talk so much about sin. Man, it's just such a, it, it, it's such a nice flow. It's almost poetic or confusing, however you look at it. But it's such an interesting piece of work. It's such, such great writing, such highly inspired text. If it wasn't so much about evil, then I think that's the whole point. It's about sin and it's about evil that is gripping us, that wants nothing more than to work its way into our lives, again, wherever we might be, either before coming to faith or after coming to faith, and work its way down into us and drastically put us off course from where God would have us to be. So one of these commentary writers, he said... Uh, he said this, when we are faced with sin, whether in our own lives or in the wider world, we should never underestimate it. Evil is real and powerful. It's opposed to God, his world, his human creatures, and not least those who are called to follow his son. We dare not trifle with it. It is deceitful and deadly. Paul had even said it got to really read this passage in its context. But he had even said back in the preceding paragraph, 
that sin is so sneaky and so deceptive and so powerful that it had even usurped the law that God had given. It had even, it even sucked the law into its influence and it had used the law to bring about even greater sin in the lives of those who were following the law. It, twisting and turning and leading people to death. If this is the case, then Paul seems to be saying this same sin can surely prevail over any human being, even one whose intentions and motives are good. If sin can use the law, which Paul says is spiritual and which is holy and which is good, sin can even more readily invade us as humans. We are under attack. I, I, I hate to be one who is like, you know, watch out. It's, it's uh, you know, doomsday. I'm not that guy. If you know me, you, you know that's not me. I'm not that. I'm, I'm, I'm believing for the very best. But we need to be people, this passage would tell us, who are on our guard. Romans relentlessly insists, not only in this passage, but throughout the letter, that sin powerfully invades and controls human existence. The reality of sin and evil in the world. But here's the last thing I want to just tell you. It's this. That this passage, as much as it proclaims the, the power of sin and evil, evil in the world, it proclaims the perfect and complete adequacy of Christ in response to that sin and evil. This week, as I was telling you, I was fixing the battery, you know, replacing the batteries on my keys. I got that YouTube video going, and I was like, oh, great. I'm going to be able to do this, no problem. And then it said, now turn your key over. And you will see a very small screw. And I hit pause. And I turn it over. And I look, that is a very small screw. And I said, I do not have a screwdriver that can fit in that screw. So this YouTube lesson is coming quickly to an end. Until I called out to my never-failing wife, Kyla. Do you have a little screwdriver? I think I've seen you with one. And she rustles around, rummages around in the kitchen drunk drawer. Anybody else have one of those? Uh, and, and pulls out this little screwdriver and hands it to me. And I look at it. And I look at the screw. And I think that is the perfect screwdriver. Boom, right into it. Opens it up. No problem. The complete adequacy of this screwdriver for that screw. That's, that's a silly illustration, but it, it, it's the perfect one to remind us that for this, for this incredible problem of sin and evil, this incredible, devastating blow that, that the enemy has given to the world, given to all creation, there is a remedy. There is a perfect and adequate, perfectly adequate solution and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Paul wants to say in this passage unashamedly proclaiming right there in 20 verse 25 when he cries out who will save me from this miserable life? I mean what a great question. Who will save me from this miserable life? Jesus Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the one that will free humanity 
from the power of sin. Now, some may argue when that's going to happen, either in this life or when Jesus comes again. But here's the reality. Here's the promise. No human initiative, no matter how good or how, how forceful, can overcome the power of sin. It, you, forget it. But the power of Jesus Christ is perfectly adequate to overcome the power of sin. It's as we respond to this grace of God, as we open ourselves up to the presence and the power of God at work in our lives, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit through the means of His grace, as Aaron talked about last week, through Scripture and through prayer and through the sacraments, through the body of Christ, that we begin to find ourselves being transformed, living with a sense of freedom from the paralyzing conflict that Paul describes here in Romans 7. Well, I'm showing my cards just a little bit there. I guess I'll just go ahead and lay them all down. Perhaps you can tell that if pressed, I would say that I lean towards the second interpretation. That's, if I had to, that's where I'd plant my flag. That which we've called that optimistic interpretation. And for me, as I suggested earlier, it's the contextual evidence that is just too overwhelming. For me, as I look at this, this chapter here in, verse, in chapter 7, it just has to be held up against chapter 6 and chapter 8. And chapter 6, verse 22 says this, that now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. And chapter 8 that we'll get to next week tells us that now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And right here again in 725, thank God, the answer to this problem of sin is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So with humility, I want to be clear and on the record, and you can question me as much as you want, but on the record is saying that I just don't think that the life that Paul describes here in these verses of chapter 7 is the one that Jesus died to give us. I, I just don't think that this is the kind of experience that has been made possible for us through the power of God that raised Jesus from, from the dead. I just don't think as I read these verses in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 there to 24 in particular, that this was what Jesus was talking about when he said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I mean, does that testimony sound like abundant life to you? It, it sounds more like a, a sentence than salvation. In fact, I would almost say, almost, I don't think I would say this completely, but I would almost say that if this is the kind of life that God invites us to, as described here in chapter 7, ultimately with this kind of frustration and failure, with this kind of disappointment and defeat and discouragement, why would anyone really want that? Why would anyone be attracted to Romans chapter 7? To me, and to many others before me, this testimony makes sense 
as a description, again, for those whose hearts and minds have been stirred by God's grace. This testimony makes sense for those whose consciences have been awakened by God's law in the case of Israel or by the moral laws of the universe in the case of secular people, but folks who attempt to bridge that gulf between themselves and God as they understand Him by their own good behavior, by their own moral action, by their own human strength. Here I see in chapter 7 is the experience of those who have tried to achieve on their own what only God can achieve. <laughs> who have tried and even are trying to do what God has already done and who find themselves coming up short every time. Maybe that's somebody here even this morning. But I also think that this passage makes sense for maybe more of us here this morning as a testimony of a Christian who was perhaps and absolutely saved by the grace of God, but who is now attempting to live out the Christian life as if it was all up to them. Now, maybe that rings a little closer to home. You were saved by grace, absolutely, but since that moment, it's as if you said, thank you, now I'll take it from here, God. And the level of frustration and discouragement for you is real and present. Anyone among us who would attempt to substitute keeping the rules or relying on myself and on my own good behavior. This was me for so many years of my high school life in particular and on into college just trying to do it on my own, living up to a certain standard. Anyone who does this as opposed to this moment-by-moment -moment dependence and reach to the grace of God for his help and his strength is only setting themselves up for failure and frustration. I don't think that this is the normative Christian testimony that we have read from Paul here in chapter 7 of Romans. But this will undoubtedly be the experience of any believer who fails to remember that any success or any advancement, any progress in their faith will not be because of what you are doing, but because of what God is doing in you through the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit, to say a prayer of salvation, to invite Jesus to be in our hearts and in our lives, and then to go about the work of transformation and sanctification by our own efforts is only to invite confusion and disillusionment. Maybe some of you are there. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome thing to be um, a, a parent. And I always am hesitant to tell stories, so I'll just generally talk about the kids who live in my house. 
But, but it's so funny, at every stage, as you're a child, your, your natural uh, tendency is to grow towards independence. And I'm, you know, to the point now where I'm counting the summers that I still have my kids in my home and the times that we get to spend together. And it's quickly evaporating. And, and independence is ultimately what we're moving them to. But even in the time in which they live with us, those of you who are parents who've known this, it's like they, they want help sort of standing up. But as soon as they're standing up, it's like, let go of me. I want to walk on my own. And then when you take them to school, it's like, walk me to the, to the class. And then sooner or later, depending on the child perhaps, it's now don't ever come near the school again. <laughs> and as they move into adolescence, it's the same sort of, of movement. It's like, I need you, I need you, yes, and now get away from me. And there's this tendency, I think, that we have as human people to, to move towards this sort of natural movement, to, to, to want help, and then as soon as we get it, to push away. Maybe it's this American sort of tendency to, to move out west and to, to, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just be able to do it on our own. And maybe if somebody gives us a little help, that's all right, but as soon as we're able, we want to be able to do it on our own. And I just think sometimes, if we're not careful, this translates right over into our lives with God. That yes, thank you that you saved me by your grace, but now I'll take care of it. And we find ourselves right back in this place of frustration and failure and defeat. The invitation of the scripture, friends, among many other things, is to be people who are constantly leaning into Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the remedy for every temptation, for every challenge, for every place where we find ourselves, to be people who are receiving our salvation by his grace and who continue to lean into him to receive our very life by his grace. May we be sponges <laughs> soaking up every drop of God's grace that he wants to give. Let's stand together, can we? I invite our worship team to come. Lord, this morning, as we've worked our way through sort of a challenging passage of Scripture, I just believe that, that you want to speak to some people. And really, regardless of our, the interpretive lens by which we approach this passage of Scripture, really regardless of, of what side we plant our flag on, we, we want to be people this morning who, again, are very deliberately and carefully setting up uh, our, our defenses against the power of sin. We, we recognize it's, it's sneaky and tricky and able to, to attack us from so many different angles. And perhaps even as we look back at the week from which we've come, we can see the different ways in which it infiltrated its way into our lives and into our families and into our homes and into our hearts, into our workplace into who we want to be. And we, we want to be folks who are, who are setting up guards around us, protecting and preserving. We want to be people who at the same time are recognizing that, that we don't have to just, just kind of 
push away at this sin, but there is a, a perfectly adequate solution to it, and that's by our faith and our trust in you, Jesus. That it's not just pushing away the sin, but it's holding more tightly onto you. And so God, I would pray that, that uh, among us this morning, that while there might be some here this morning who, who have just been trying, 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 by their own efforts, by their own even religious behaviors, to try to find some peace with you, and they just can't get there. That, that this would be a moment, a moment in time where they just lay that effort down and grab hold of you, Jesus. And, and I'm praying that there would be some others who have been saved by the grace of God, who have been saved by, by your loving embrace, Lord Jesus. You have you have forgiven them of their sin. You have given them new hope and the promise of eternal life. And yet they have sort of just taken it all back and are trying now to, to take forward steps in their own strength and by their own effort. I pray again today, Lord, if there's some like that, that this would just be a moment where they lay it all down, where they lay it all down and instead grab tightly to the presence of Jesus, the completely adequate solution, that we would live into your grace, O oh God, that we would not, that we'd see striving and instead start resting and reaching into you and to who you are and allowing the means of your grace to flow over us and to flood into us and to bring transformation to our lives, not from the outside in, but from the inside out as you fill us. Oh God, may our hearts be open and may we know that by your strength and power, you have something beautiful in mind for us, both now and forever. God, we love you. May we respond to you even now as we sing. We pray this in your name. Amen.